Good evening and welcome to our Distinguished Leaders in Action program this evening. We are delighted to have you with us. We, we probably need to start having that music uh, piped in when we were back together in person. I was uh, really getting, getting into that. What a great way to start the program. So welcome. We are delighted to have you here uh, for our first uh, 2021 Leaders in Action program this year. And on behalf of myself, Will Sparks, uh, Dean Rick Matthew of the McCall School of Business, the entire faculty and staff of the McCall School of Business and Queen's University of Charlotte, welcome. Uh, my name is Will Sparks. As I said, I am the Dennis Thompson Chair and Professor of Leadership in the McCall School of Business, and it is truly an honor for me uh, to be with you tonight and moderate this panel of a critically important topic uh, that we're going to be discussing this evening. Before we get started, I did want to share some really great news, and I think this is um, important. This is just reflective of how important this subject is. Uh, the Leaders in Action program in the McCall School of Business has been in place for 18 years, going back to 2003, when we started this program under the direction of the Dean at the time, Peter Browning. And tonight's program has set a new registration attendance record uh, for the last 18 years. And I think there are two reasons for that. One, I think the topic is critically important, not only for our community, uh, but for this nation and for the world uh, at large. I think it's a critically important topic. And I also think the other reason is because of the distinguished panel we have assembled tonight who have given so generously of their time to be with us this evening. Uh, and so I wanna get started with some introductions and we will dive right into uh, tonight's discussion. So welcome and let's get started. I mentioned our distinguished panel and I'm gonna ask each of them to take a minute or two and introduce themselves uh, to us. And I'm gonna start uh, if I can with Dan Lugo, president of Queens University of Charlotte. Dan, if you would tell us about a little bit about yourself, your current role, and your journey up to this point. Well, thank you, Will, and I'm really honored to be on this panel with our uh, illustrious, illustrious alumni, uh, Tanya Blackman and Reggie Willis, um, who on all topics, but especially topics related to equity, inclusion, and diversity, um, far outpace my knowledge. Um, thanks for giving me the opportunity to join, and uh, my background, uh, two years ago, uh, it was announced that I was going to be the 21st uh, president of the great uh, Queens University of Charlotte, uh, and we've, we've had an incredible uh, time here in Charlotte, my family and I, and uh, going all the way back, uh, how did I get into this world of higher education? Um, I happen to be a first-generation college attender. I was born uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, but grew up uh, in New York on the South Shore of Long Island, uh, and was, I would say, transformed and empowered by getting a great education at the undergraduate level at a school out in Minnesota. Um, but one of the things that you know happens when you're a first-generation college attender, you're a first-generation college graduate. Uh, and in 19, you know, the early 1990s, it was a good idea to go to, to law school as somewhat of a default. And I did. Um, and, you know, even though I didn't enjoy law school very much, I got a great education. Uh, and I ended up practicing for nine years. Uh, but it was about 18 years ago that I got back into higher education. And I've worked at some 
really wonderful institutions across the country in Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Maine. Um, and I think I've come to uh, the most exciting of all of those institutions here in Charlotte at a great, great moment in time for our city uh, and a great, great moment in time for our institution. So happy to be here and happy to be a, a, a voice and leader on this topic. Thank you, Dan, so much. Really appreciate that. Tanya, if I could come over to you and ask you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your current role and your journey up to this point. Yeah, thank you very much. And it feels great to be at Queens. You know, I got my MBA at Queens. So this is like coming back home. So thank you very much for having me. I started my career um, as a frontline social worker. <clears throat> and so 30 years plus, a little 30 years plus, um, I'm now um, on the executive team of Novant Health and I'm the Chief Diversity Inclusion Equity Officer. It's really interesting, um, when I started my career as a social worker, I got my bachelor's in social work and my master's in social work from, um, master's from the University of South Carolina. But I knew in the very beginning in my career that I wanted to really add value to people's lives. And at that point, it was social work. And so that's why I got my master's and bachelor's in social work. Um, I was at Novon Health. I was the president of two of our hospitals. And so you probably wonder then, how did you get into this role of being the Chief Diversity Inclusion Equity Officer? Well, it's really interesting um, that I think some people would think that it's because I'm an African-American female. Well, I looked in the mirror this morning. I am an African-American female. That's not why I'm in this role. <laughs> um, the president and CEO asked me to take this role because of about three things. One is that he felt like I, being a social worker, um, that I really understood the people side of healthcare. Running um, two of our hospitals, um, he felt like I had the business knowledge of healthcare, that that's important to really marry those two, and that I understood operations. And then he wanted me really to look at strategically, how do we leverage this core value of diversity, inclusion, Novon Health? and wanted me to operationalize that throughout the company, which involves 30,000 team members. So um, I accepted the challenge and it's been wonderful and it's been challenging, but um, I'm really excited that um, we are uh, really embedding diversity, inclusion, equity in Novant Health. Thank you, Tanya, excellent. And, and our third panel, Panelist uh, Reggie Willis. Reggie, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself to our uh, audience tonight? Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey up to this point. Absolutely, well, and thank you for having me. Really excited about being here. Thank you, um, Dan and Tanya, for joining, allowing me to join you on stage. So I am also a Queens alum. I went to the Executive MBA program and graduated in 2003, mm -hmm. uh, where my relationship with Will actually started. So I've known Will, Will and I have been. Uh, communicating and partnering in a number of different areas for about 20 years now. So um, much like Tanya, I did not take a straight path to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I currently serve as the chief diversity officer for Ally Financial. And um, prior to taking on this work about five years ago, spent 23 years in risk. So I was uh, all things risk. I was an underwriter for an insurance company. I did third party risk. I've done operational risk. So um, much like Tanya, you might ask, how did someone that did all of the, you know, this risk work get involved with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I learned early on in my life and my career that I have a passion for people. And, and this work obviously deals with people in, in a more most critical way and really trying to get people to understand kind of where they are, 
and moving them to where they want to be. So very similar to coaching. One of the other things that I did as a part of my Queens Association is I came back and got a certification to be an executive coach. So I'm certified as an executive coach through Queens and um, definitely see that work embedded in what I do from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective. Um, was asked to take on this role five years ago um, after Jeff Brown, who many of you might know, JB, took on the role as um, CEO at Ally and, and really thought it was important to have a deliberate focus on diversity and inclusion and um, had an opportunity to take on the work and have been uh, pleased at the fact that my vocation and my passion are now aligned with each other and I think my purpose and really enjoy doing this work day in and day out, um, even with the challenges and the things you face doing it, but it's been a lot of fun so far. Excellent, thank you, Reggie. Thank you all for the introductions. And so let, let's, let's dive in uh, to, tonight's, uh, to tonight's topic and subject. The title is The Business Imperative for Social Justice, and I thought that it would be worthwhile, uh, actually the panel thought it would be worthwhile to, to maybe start defining some terms up front. And so I, I thought I would ask each of you a separate question, and then after those three questions, we've got a few that I would, I would love to get all of your responses to the same question. But let's start with maybe sort of talking about and defining our terms. Um, so if I can start this conversation around that, uh, Dan, if you don't mind, I'd like to, I'd like to start with you and, and ask for your definition of diversity and your definition of inclusion. How are they alike and how are they different? Yeah, well, I think that's a really, really important question, an important exercise for us to do at um, all levels of organization and, and community, because uh, there are incredibly um, difficult misunderstandings around the topic of diversity and inclusion. And as we're doing our work uh, with our Queens uh, senior leadership and the board, it was great to have Tanya and Reggie uh, with the board last week to do this type of foundational work. So my definition of diversity is a very, very broad one. Um, you know, in America, we have grown accustomed to thinking of diversity in really binary terms, right? Uh, gender, male, female, uh, uh, race. And when we talk about race, oftentimes folks are talking about whether you're white or you're black. And that is just inaccurate, number one, and leaves so many aspects of diversity that are important. We leave those out. So I define diversity as all of the things in our community that make us similar to others or different than others. And some of those can be visible characteristics of each of us. It could be our race. It could be um, our gender. It could be, you know, things that are less visible, things like ethnicity, uh, things like uh, for, you know, for folks that look fantastic like Reg Reggie, you know, we have no idea how old he is, right? So it's hard to put him in a generation. Um, but education and uh, political affiliation and religious, uh, you know, values and spirituality, these are all the things that make us interesting and make us different and make us have things in common with different members of our community. So I hope we can move away from a very outdated uh, way of thinking of diversity. You know, I, I mentioned where I grew up. I went to a high school that was, you know, nearly three quarters uh, African-American. And it wasn't until I arrived at a campus that was 92% white in Southern Minnesota that I realized that, oh, I was diverse, right? Because I was different from what was, you know, dominant in that area. But I, I think we need to really expand our definitions. And, and while 
diversity is important because reputation, excuse me, representation matters. I think it's, it needs a, a harder level of work that is inclusion. So organizations and communities that don't focus uh, on inclusion are less likely to be optimally performing, successful, or sustainable. So inclusion is that harder work of actually valuing all of those ways that we're different and similar and seeing those differences as truly strengths and ensuring that each of those differences are recognized and that people feel a sense of belonging, that they can be themselves in that community, in that workforce, uh, and that they take ownership of that community and that workforce because of inclusion. So very different diversity and inclusion, but both very, very important to work on. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Reggie, let, let me ask you about uh, the difference of two very similar terms, uh, equity and equality. Uh, we often hear those. Uh, how do you define those and maybe in the same sort of vein, how are they alike and then how are they different or unique? Yeah, absolutely. Great question, Will. And I think many times people use those two terms interchangeably and, and there is some nuanced differences, right? When you think about uh, equality, it's about you know, giving equal um, access and or opportunity for or, or um, distribution of resources for a group or an individual, right? So when you think about, and on the surface, that sounds great, right? Uh, it, everyone gets treated equally. I think when you talk about equity, it's about really understanding that each individual and or group needs different things and different access to opportunities and or resources. So it's really, when you talk about equity, it's meeting people where they are to make sure that you have equal outcomes. So I think equity is more about the outcome and equality is more about um, the mechanics, right? So, and said differently, you can't get to equality without first considering equity. You have to understand what people need in order to kind of level the playing field, if you will, and then you can start talking about equal distribution of resources, opportunities, access, um, there's a great visual that, that really depicts this well, and it shows um, three individuals trying to watch a ball game. And there is a, a fence that is impeding their ability to see. And, and they all, there's three milk crates. And Equality talks about giving each of these individuals a milk crate, which sounds great, but one of the individuals is six feet tall and can see over the fence without any assistance. The other one can just barely see over the, the fence and could really benefit from having a milk crate and the third individual, even with the one milk crate, still can't see over the fence. So when you talk about equity and thinking about meeting people where they are, the individual that can see without any assistance doesn't need the milk crate. The individual that, that needs that little bit of help could use one milk crate. And the third individual that can't see with the aid of the one milk crate really needed both the milk crates. So it's meeting them where they are to make sure that they have, um, like I said, the equal outcomes. So um, much harder to execute than it is to explain, I think. Uh, there's definitely an intent behind um, equity, and organizations have to be very thoughtful about um, making sure that they're deliberate in the exercise of kind of playing that out. So hopefully that helped. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Reggie. Really appreciate that. Uh, Tanya, let me ask you sort of the, in this uh, third question around sort of defining terms, and it's, it has to do with uh, justice. And, and justice is in the title of our program tonight, the business imperative for justice. 
uh, how do you how do you define justice in the context of this broader discussion? Um, thank you, Will. Um, it's really interesting as I listen to you, us talk about diversity, inclusion, equity, justice. They all go together. You know, it's really hard, and I think Reggie would say this. It's really hard to say let's just do one of those things and not the other thing because it all connects. Um, and as Reggie and Dan have said, that this is really about people. Um, when you think about diversity, you think about inclusion, you think about equity, it's all about people. And so when you start thinking about people and understanding what their unique needs are, then you have to step back and say, okay, so what are the barriers? What's preventing us or preventing people from getting to their destination where they want to be? So I really see justice as, um, in the social, let me just say, in the social work world, social work is based on systems theory. So if you think about it, when you're doing therapy or counseling with a family or um, a client, you have to understand how that family system makes that family functional or dysfunctional. And so I kind of take my social work hat and put it into the diversity and inclusion equity world and think about justice in that same way. So justice for me is looking at systems. It's really looking at having a system, whether it's local, state, federal, regional system, or even our own organizations that allows, affords the people the opportunity to have um, access to resources, access to tools, access to opportunities, so that people can not only survive, but they truly can thrive. So I think all of the work with diversity, inclusion, and equity all comes together so that we can have a just society, so that we can have justice, where everyone's truly needs are met, but it's because we've taken down systems and barriers, um, as Reggie mentioned, systems and barriers, and really looking at what kinds of systems are in place, what kinds of policies, what kinds of procedures, what kinds of things um, are systemically in place that advantage some and disadvantage others, um, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally. So when we think about justice, I'd say we want to make sure that we are achieving um, systems, we are putting systems in place that truly give people access to opportunities, resources, and tools so that they can thrive. Excellent, thank you, Tanya. I've, I've known you for years and I have to confess, I did not know about your social work background. So when you started that, I was thinking about family systems therapy right right when you said that. So uh, that is, what, what, a, what a great perspective to bring to this because it, it, you really have to understand the, not just the throughput, but the input and the output uh, component of that as well. Yeah. And I'm grateful to Queens, my MBA part of my brain gave me the business side of that. So it's been, it's been a great marriage between the two degrees. Yeah. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you. So let me, I'd like to transition, if I may, into a few questions where I'm going to ask um, all of you uh, sort of the same question as we think about challenges and rewards and, and then really sort of getting into the, this notion of the, the sort of the business outcome and business imperative. But let me start with asking each of you to consider or maybe provide an example of what's been the most challenging to you personally in this role. And I'll change up the order a little bit. Uh, so if I can, Reggie, on, on with this one, I'll, I'll start with, with you. When you think about your, your current role with Ally Financial now uh, in, this, in this context, what's been the most challenging aspect for you? Yeah, well, I. I 
thought about this question and trying to figure out which, which, which event would I select, uh, because there's a lot of challenges in this work. I think um, that's the, the beauty of it, that the challenges and the rewards are um, very great. But I think if I was to look back last year, um, was probably the most challenging year, and in particular, after the um, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd murders, and and being a black man in this role, trying to care for the broader organization. So, Ally Broadly, we held um, a number. I mean, we had over four thousand of our ninety-five hundred employees take part in what we call facilitated learning sessions about you know topics of difference, we call it, let's talk about it, but we held two and a half weeks of these conversations, two each day, that allowed small groups of our employee base to really just talk through their experience, what they um, were feeling, how, you know, um, systemic racism impacted them in the workplace, outside of the workplace, and, and our white employee base got to hear and listen and provide their inputs and feedback, and, and, and it was just having to kind of care for the organization, but also having my own grief and my own um, relationship to the experience and, and, and you know, seeing myself and my, my dad and my brother and my uncles um, underneath the neck of that police officer was just, uh, it was a lot, you know, but I think the, the plus side was, is I, I saw a different sense of humanity from those conversations and dialogue um, I did them inside our, our organization and outside of our organization. So I did that, that those conversations in the community as well. And, and just the, 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 the joy that, that uh, or maybe the hope that people were, there were all sorts of people that were rallying around at the, the fact that it was time for a change. And so that was, you know, even though that was a painful moment, I think having um, seen the other side of that to some degree and, and watching my 20-year-old um, organize and participate in protests and, and seeing them find their voice and some other things within that experience gave me hope that um, even if we don't get it right in my lifetime, that, that we may get it right, you know, in the, in the not so distant future. So. Reggie, if I could just ask you a follow-up on that, just this is purely yeah. from a facilitation or a moderation <laughs> perspective. When you enter into to, to this, this environment and you talked about how challenging it was and you've got your personal emotions, uh, you know, that are that are at play as well. How do you decide how much of, of you to bring into that and, and how much are you trying to moderate? Do you even try to, do you try to make a distinct distinction or do you let it all come out? Or how, how did you manage that emotional piece as you are out in front of hundreds of people moderating town hall discussions and you're live without a net? How, how did you do that? Um. A lot of prayer, if I'm being honest, well, because it was it wasn't easy, right? It was a lot of um, I wasn't sure what to expect on the first few calls, and there was a lot of raw emotion. I mean, to the extent that we've got offices in Shoreview, which is right outside of uh, Minneapolis, where George Floyd was murdered, and and the first call we got on, someone knew George personally, mm. and had a personal relationship with him, and so. You know, you want to talk about a gut punch. I mean, it was it was raw emotion and it was um, difficult. But but to your earlier question, I did try to play the role of a facilitator. 
Um, and and I, I won't say I compartmentalized my emotion, but I definitely allowed for and hopefully created the container for other people to share their emotion and share their experience and 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 hopefully grow from that. But but it was more about you know being in the role of of a facilitator and and saying you know. I have my emotion and there's a time and place to interject, but this is really about creating space for others. And so that's what I had to do. And, and, and to be honest, there were many evenings where my team got together and we cried and we, you know, had a beer and, and had some conversations that were, you know, very um, uh, cathartic for us, right? We, we got all of our emotion out so we could create the space for everyone else to do the same. Thank you, Rich. Really appreciate yeah. that. Uh, Dan, if I could, if I could come to you with the same question in, in your current role, what, what's been most challenging for you uh, in this in this broader context? Yeah, and I so appreciate you know uh, uh, Reggie, your your really um, authentic sharing about what what that experience was like for you in in recent months. Um, a lot of that resonates with me, um, and some things that stand out around the challenge of owning. Uh, social justice and an equitable agenda um, that aligns with me personally is how that gets, you know, expressed and represented in my role as a university president. Um, you know, we're, we're a, we're a not-for-profit. We are not a political organization. We are actually not supposed to be a political organization. And I lead that organization. And so I have to find an authentic way to do that. Um, that that resonates and represents me well, but also represents the fullest extent of our institution. And so one of those challenges is really bridging the gap in between generations, right? If you think of my constituencies and audiences, um, I've got a powerful constituency and our uh, undergraduate students who are typically, you know, Gen Z folks. Uh, I've got a, 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 a workforce of, of faculty and staff that may be, you know, uh, millennials or Gen Xers, you know, and then I've got uh, a board of trustees, uh, an alumni group that can be of, of you know, uh, older generations. And, and it's interesting, this role really puts me at the nexus of the deep kind of skepticism in between generations. Right, I hear from one aspect talking about the other pole of the, the generational spectrum with you know, great guardedness and how they're changing everything or how they're resistant to change uh, in, in everything. And you know, one real powerful example that, that was really challenging for me was this past spring, um, the Board of Trustees uh, voted uh, in, in recognition of discoveries and research that we had related to the namesake of one of, uh, you know, the most quintessential and visible uh, buildings on our campus because of their connections to uh, and involvement in, in, in slavery. Um, and the, the reaction of, uh, uh, you know, the younger cohorts of, hey, that's not enough. You know, what else are you going to do? And yet the reaction of the older cohorts of um, painful, uh, you know, deep offense from some. And, and I was on the front end of receiving all of that kind of, uh, you know, the multitude and, and variety and diversity of, of that feedback. Some that felt as my, you know, as I'm an African-American man um, that was going through, um, you know, everything that Reggie was just talking about at that period of time. It was very, very difficult for me to, again, 
uh, a process at a high level and yet stick to my role as, as, as a leader for all, uh, as a president for all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that highlight, you know, that, that highlights another kind of challenge. It, it really is something that's intrinsic to my family and who I am. Diversity is critically important, right? I, I have a multi-ethnic, uh, you know, multi-racial, multi-religious and spirituality perspective family. And so we walk the walk around the importance of all of these issues. And when it came time, you know, to consider being involved in one or more of the many uh, peaceful civic protests that, that uh, navigated through our city and sometimes navigated through our neighborhood here around Queens, we participated. And, and I will say that that was not universally well received and I received direct feedback about that. So I think at the end of the day, you gotta stick to your, your values, right? And what's most important and be honest about those and be authentic. And what I've found, even those that are upset potentially with you know, your, your choice at that particular moment, um, they, will, they will totally rally around that authenticity. Right, and you will not lose people if they totally understand, and you can have a good conversation about where that comes from. But but there definitely been a lot of challenges in the last year. Is has been you know a series of, of running into those challenges. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dan. I'd, I'd never thought about that ne this nexus of Z, millennial, X, boom. I mean that that's a and very sort of different experiences and, and views and all of that as well. Thank you. Uh, Tanya, let me ask you the, the same question in, in your role and in, in this, this context, what's been most challenging for you? Yeah, um, Dan and Reggie, thank you so much for sharing those stories. Uh, I'll start with uh, just one more little thing about my, my history. Um, I grew up as a military dependent. My father is a drill instructor in the Marine Corps. And so when you are a military dependent, you are accustomed to living around people of all different races, cultures, and many dimensions of diversity um, because no one comes from the base. Everybody is brought into the base. So you really have to learn how to understand each other and live with each other. Well, when I, um, so that's helped me all of my career. When I started in this role, I'll just tell this quick story. When I started in this role, um, there was a senior leader in the company who said to me, um, you know, Tanya, you are well-respected. You've done a lot in this company, well thought of, and we all think the world of you. But I want to warn you, don't take this diversity and inclusion stuff too far. Well, I will tell you, it kind of just like pushed me back in my seat a little bit to hear that. Because here I am, gung-ho, ready to go into this role. Carl um, Armato, our president and CEO, is committed and has asked me to do this work, and it just kind of hit me. And what I realized at that moment is that probably not everybody was as, as excited as I was, and that people are um, at different points of the journey. Uh, I call it our journey of health, of our journey of embedding diversity, inclusion, and equity. And, and people have their own values, beliefs, and preconceived ideas, own experiences, and all of those things have shaped their view of the world. So that was kind of like something, okay, you've got to remember that. So as I think about that, um, as I was doing the work, the other thing that, that led me to is resistance. Resistance, this is my social work hat, 
really is about fear and it's a fear of something. And my role in this, in my, my goal and my role in my position is to lean into the resistance so you can really understand what is the fear about. And fear is usually about losing something. So what do people really believe they're going to lose? So I've had a lot of conversations, um, just as Reggie, um, we call them Zoom chats. We've had a lot of dialogue to talk about what are the fears? What are you losing? What are you? Fe- what are you fearing? You're going to lose. What are your concerns? What are your experiences? And we try to listen. We try to really listen and seek understanding, and also have people to understand other people's perspectives and experiences. For us, it does not mean going backwards. We keep going forward, but we don't stop talking. We continue the dialogue, mm-hmm. uh, and so the work has been um, helping. The work has been with our team members as well as our board. So I've done a lot of work with our board of trustees as well as our team members. And so um, I think one of the other challenges is that shifting the culture takes a lot of patience and a long-term intentional focus. It doesn't happen overnight. We don't, our values and beliefs have not come overnight. They're kind of been ingrained in us. So it really requires an intentional focus and that's, um, been challenging because you have to keep going. You don't, you don't stop. You can't get tired. Mm -hmm. Sometimes get a little frustrated, um, but you don't stop and you keep going and you realize that you'll get to, you'll, you'll get to where you need to be. You just have to really embrace and lean into resistance sometimes. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Tanya. Really appreciate that. I'm reminded of I believe it was Carl Jung who said that what you re- that which you resist persist or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let me let me change the 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 nature of the question now and talk about rewarding. So that was about what's been most challenging in your role. And with this question, Dan, if I if I can, I'll start with you. So what's been the most rewarding for you um, in this context? Yeah, I, I, I would say that um, what's been most rewarding for me is coming to a community that uh, has in many, many ways uh, been uh, quite successful uh, on these topics and uh, being much more diverse and much more inclusive. We have a long way to go, but in, in some ways, my early work has been telling the story about who Queens really is today versus kind of at times what our reputation of who Queens has been and who people, who Queens, you know, still is in their imagination of who we are. And, you know, we stand at, 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 I think, at a great, great foundation down to our DNA level. You know, back in 1857, we're an institution that was founded for the education of women, right? So think of 1857 in America, think of 1857 in North Carolina, we are, you know, older than all but one of the seven sister, you know, colleges and institutions uh, in the Northeast that gets such incredible acclaim for their dedication for the education of women. So that's in our DNA to, to bring more people into higher education and post-secondary opportunities to launch people into a much more diverse and inclusive world. And take that Further, you know, we are so proud that we're a place that, uh, and, and a lot of, uh, uh, I think, the kudos go to folks that I stand on their shoulders, you know, uh, Dr. Wireman and Dr. Davies, that uh, 
moved a single sex institution that has a, an incredible history in that regard into a much more multi-dimensional institution that now, you know, one third of our undergraduate students are the first in their families to attend, you know, a four-year college. Mm -hmm. uh, one third of our students I, I identify as, you know, uh, uh, being students of color. Um, and it's, it's almost 40% of our, our, our students or, or greater at the undergraduate level are non-white. You know, so there's so many aspects of that that um, seem to be a counter narrative from what I hear that comes back to me as a, the, way, the ways people think about Queens. I see a, that I have to be a championship for who we are. Uh, and, and that has been, I think, deeply rewarding for me personally, but deeply rewarding for the role that we can play in this city. As we've proven and demonstrated that we're the place that has fared at many times the best in educating a, a diverse student body. Um, the very recently, um, the leading on opportunity uh, a, a task force and work came up with their uh, an update and report that came out. And we, we should take great pride that Queens was at the top of the list, right, for uh, economic mobility in terms of creating access, success, and true mobility of moving uh, uh, students that when they started with us, they came from uh, a, a socioeconomic economic background that was the lowest quintile of the Charlotte community. And years later, after graduating from Queens, they're now at the upper quintile. So there's just so much strength in that background for us. And I love that, that you know, we're rooted in our tradition as a Southern Presbyterian, uh, uh, you know, university at our origins. But the way we totally uh, expanded that uh, through work through the Greenspawn Center and, and the work that we're doing in Jewish life and work that we're doing with the Wells Fargo Center for Civic Engagement. I think that's very, very empowering. And in a very short period of time, uh, I'm looking to, to figure out how we can grow our capacity to do even more and be much more intentional about inclusion and equity and being seen as a leader in the community uh, for that work. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Tanya, let me ask you that, that question about now thinking about rewarding. So in your current role, what, what's been most rewarding for you? You know, when you said rewarding, it kind of made me, after, after telling the challenging, made me kind of <sighs> take a sigh of relief. Um, but what's been rewarding, when I think about, we're in the business of healthcare. So we're in the business of taking care of patients. And what's been the most rewarding about that is that we are delivering on our remarkable patient experience more now than ever. When I think of all the communities that we are touching, the COVID vaccines and how we're getting out to communities that were traditionally or historically the underserved communities, making sure that everyone has access to, to um, the COVID-19 vaccine so that we can eradicate that, this pandemic. That really is rewarding from the pandemic standpoint, but also when I see patients that are coming in from different backgrounds and we are opening our arms and saying, we are the healthcare provider for you. We understand you, we want you here, and we can meet your unique needs. So that's been very exciting to me. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that's been rewarding is that I don't have to be in the room for people now to apply the diversity, inclusion, and equity lens. 
So when we look at our data, when we're looking at our team member satisfaction, patient satisfaction, how we're connecting to communities, I don't have to be in the room and saying, what about, yeah. about diversity, inclusion, and equity? People are saying that. So that tells me that we really um, are embedding diversity, inclusion, and equity. We approach it as a culture change strategy, not a program. And so when people are doing it themselves, that's very rewarding. Um, and I'll say one more thing about our president and CEO, Carl Amato. Um, I know that Reggie will talk, could talk about JB as well. But to have a president and C, um, CEO that is truly committed, that understands, and I don't have to be with him for him to talk about how we've used diversity, inclusion, equity as a way to, um, as a strategic lever, a way to be innovative, to be um, resilient. Um, he does that. I don't have to be with him to do that. So that's very rewarding to me. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tanya. Appreciate that. Uh, Reggie, let me ask you, what, what's been the most rewarding for you? Yeah, um, similar to Tanya, I can't speak enough about JB and our leadership team and, and all the work that they've done. And, and for me, I think the most rewarding, though, is the fact that um, this is a community of practitioners. It's one of the few areas within corporate America where um, people are free to share, people are free to engage, and there's so many communities of practice around this work because we know it's a societal imperative. And although um, the outcomes, I think, can give you strategic advantages, we all see the work as so critical to who we're going to be moving forward as community, that we're willing to, to share freely and engage in dialogue and, and gain knowledge from each other and you know, take shamelessly from what we see as best practices and, and try to employ them in our institutions. And that has been um, so refreshing to be able to sit in an environment where people are like, oh, no, I tried that. It doesn't work. Try this. Or have you ever thought about this? Or can we, we start to engage this way? And it's, mm -hmm. it's more about how do we make society better? I mean, the fact that we get to partner with, you know, colleges and universities, and we're not talking about how we recruit pipelines, but we're talking about how do we make better people? Yeah. And how do we create better society? That to me is, is so rewarding that um, the application of a lot of the things we're talking about hopefully will have you know, far reaching impact from a societal perspective. And you know, personally, what's been rewarding is, is um, the rewards that my peers are getting for diversity and inclusion work at Ally. So I'm um, not just you know, the fact that we're being recognized organizationally for the work, but individuals within our group are being recognized for their DNI focus, right? The fact that, uh, much like you said, Tanya, I don't have to be in the room for this dialogue to take place. And people are, are now coming to me and saying, hey, should we be thinking about DNI or equity when we start launching products or when we're thinking about executing these programs? So that is, you know that you've gone past being a program and it's now part of who you are organizationally. That's yeah. really rewarding. Excellent. Thank you, Reggie. Thank you very much. Let, let me, speaking of that, this really sets up this next kind of question that, that really gets at the heart of the matter around, around the business imperative uh, sort of focus. And, and I'd like to, Tanya, if I can, I'd like to start with you on this question. Now, I, when I talk about a business perspective, I'm really referring a business in the term of formal organization. So education, healthcare, all fall under this umbrella as I'm, as I'm defining business and certainly financial services, thinking about it again, just from a formal organization. So 
Tanya, how would you frame the sort of the business imperative or the business outcome uh, for social justice? Yeah, um, well, and um, my sweet dog, Coco, um, sees someone outside, so she's quiet for a moment, but I think she's going to get started again, so. <laughs> well, I have my Cavapoo Shelby that is right here, and she's she's looking out the window, too, so we may have dueling, uh, dueling barking going on here in a moment. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the, you know, I think about sometimes what people say to me, well, what's the business case for diversity, inclusion, equity? And I want to go back and say, well, what's not the business case for diversity, inclusion and equity? I mean, how, how do we, how is the status quo going to get us where you want to be in the future? And so for me, um, as I think about, um, social justice and the business case or diversity, inclusion, the business case, I was mentioning this earlier, it's really about people. We're really talking about people. And I don't know of any business, whether you're in educate higher ed and you're wanting more students, whether you're in healthcare and you're wanting more patients, whether you're in the banking industry and you probably want more clients. I mean, you know, I, th I don't know of any industry that isn't reliant on people for their work. So I think that the business case really is, is that, um, you know, for us, buildings don't, deliver on the remarkable patient experience. Um, buildings don't tell our team members, um, for, they don't say to our team members, it's the best place for you to work. Our team members know that. They have to experience our culture. They have to experience who we are as an organization. So when you think about that and thinking about people, people create innovation. I mean, they are the people who are thinking of ideas and can be innovative in the work. Um, people are resilient. People will help you get through the, the tough times. You know, in tough times and challenging times, people pay attention to you when things are good and people pay attention to you when things are bad. So that people help to build your reputation. So I, I really think that leveraging the people side of the business helps you as an organization, whatever area you're in, as an organization to understand that we're dependent on the people to help us build the business and how you care about them really does make a difference. Excellent. Thank you, Tanya. Uh, Reggie, let me, let me go to you. So what about the, the business case of the business imperative? Yeah, you know, and, and can't echo enough what Tanya's saying that's really about people, but I think maybe taking a step back, one of the, the, the maybe misconceptions about why diverse organizations perform better and, and you can see there's many studies that have shown uh, organizations with more women in their executive teams outperform uh, their peers that don't. Same thing with people of color. But I think the, the misconception is, is you're going to bring all this difference in the room and everybody's going to lock arms and, and, you know, everyone's going to be this great partnership and it's going to be all, you know, everything's going to be agreeable and people are going to start singing Kumbaya. But I think that the reality that you get those outcomes is because differences create that that optimization of outcomes right that where iron sharpens iron that friction that you get that natural tension when you have different perspectives coming into the room is how you optimize performance right you may get good outcomes if everyone thinks the same and everyone has a homogeneous view of of the problem but are you going to get the best outcomes mm -hmm. you get the best outcomes and i think all of us can go back to our own experiences and it's really about when was i challenged the most 
when did someone make me argue my point or create uh, you know my business case for why i wanted to do something it wasn't the person that agreed with you right it was the difference that was in the room and i think that that's where for organizations, like Tanya said, any organization that wants to optimize their performance, whether that's through creating bright minds and you know higher education or creating the best products for your customers or providing the best service for your, your patients, it's about um, appreciating the differences that people bring and celebrating those differences. So not just tolerating them, but I, I always think about our organization as a, as a circle and I don't want people to come into the circle and it not to expand to meet and, and accept who they are when they come in. So I don't want people to come in and then assimilate to the culture we have. I want them to come in and for us to continue to create space for the difference that they bring. And I think that's how you become, uh, you know, how you optimize and why it's imperative to have because um, as we continue to become a diverse society, um, not being able to meet people where they are or understanding the nuances that they bring to the experience is gonna leave you at a disadvantage when you're trying to provide services or uh, products for those, those groups of folks. Reggie, that reminds me of a, of a researcher, a faculty member that I saw a few months ago who said that especially in executive teams and group decision-making, talking about the need for greater diversity, he said, if you want the path of least resistance, have a homogeneous group. And that, that's the easy, everybody's got the same experience, everybody has the same assumptions, and you make a quick decision. If you want the path of optimal decision-making or the op, what he said, optimal outcomes, then you, know, you, you have to have that greater diversity involved. It, it is this kind of sharpening iron, iron, you know, but that's where the optimal decisions and ideas and creativity come out to, to better mirror the, the larger society that we're operating in, whether it's education, healthcare, or, or financial services. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, uh, Dan, let me ask you about the, the business imperative, uh, maybe with a special emphasis on education. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, no, thank you. And I, I love listening to, to Tanya and, and Reggie talk about um, the case uh, broadly as well as for their industries. And, and I'm happy to make it very, very clear that social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, and uh, are, are essential, essential uh, to the case for the future of higher education and, uh, you know, across our industry, but also for our individual institutions. And we're at a really precarious moment in higher education for the first time that anyone can remember, right? There's quite a bit of questioning around the value of, of, of higher education. That, that used to be uh, an assumption, right? That that was a part of the American dream, that you would have access to get post-secondary education or that you would work hard enough that you could provide access to your kids uh, for that. And now that's becoming a little less of, of the narrative. And I think that's a dangerous thing for society, but definitely for folks that work in this industry. You know, and I think part of the reason is that too often higher education has um, talked the talk around, you know, social justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but hasn't really walked the walk. Too many times when we really look at the data, we see you know, the same challenging inequities in society just get further exacerbated at some elements of higher education. So you know, after decades of, of, of being you know, seen as a leader, our results just aren't good enough. And so I'm really proud that Queens is a place that has walked the walk. You know, I referenced earlier around that economic mobility report that talks about that 
we can't be satisfied with that, but we also have to draw even more attention to it because we have to be seen as a social good. We will not be competitive, right, in the 21st century uh, across the globe unless we get more, more of our population access to uh, and completion of post-secondary education. And, and that kind of leads to my second part of making the case of why this is critically important. It's just the demographic argument, right? The, the United States has an incredible challenge ahead of it in that, you know, the 21st century, the American economy hinges on educating a much, much more diverse workforce. And all of the jobs that are posed, uh, you know, to grow significantly in this century require something beyond a high school education. So we have a really important role to play in that. And not too far in the future, we're talking about years. This isn't, and this isn't hocus pocus, this is just demographics based on who was born, right, 10, 20 years ago and who's being born now. Um, the, the vast majority of our future uh, uh, students are gonna come from families that are of color and that are likely the first in their family to attend a four-year institution. So if higher education isn't gonna start walking the walk and truly demonstrating the critical importance of expertise and equity, inclusion, and diversity, we're gonna be in trouble. We're, we're, we're just not gonna do a good job. And hence, we're not gonna be good partners, right, for industry. We're not gonna be good partners for our nation because our job is to educate future leaders, right? The managers, the executives, the nonprofit leaders that are gonna truly be able to ensure that our you know, next century is gonna be our best century. Because uh, there's no going back. Demographics tell us that there, there isn't any going back to whatever you think was the glory day of our country. We're going forward in a much more diverse world and higher education has a critically important role to play in that, especially through a lens around social justice and equity and diversity and inclusion. Thank you, Dan. Excellent. Can I, if I may, I'd like to ask you if you wouldn't mind taking just a moment for our audience members. You've referenced the economic mobility study, and I'm so proud to be associated with Queens and so proud of those results because it wasn't even close. And in the competition were big, big names, but very prestigious schools, and we really uh, did a terrific job with that. Would you take just a moment and explain exactly what that study looked at and then what the findings were, especially with regard to Queens? Yeah, happy to do that. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll um, ask for some, some latitude and not perhaps getting it perfectly right. So uh, uh, most folks uh, are aware of uh, the challenge of economic mobility uh, here in Charlotte, where the Chetty study years ago identified that among the 50 largest uh, urban areas, Charlotte was last for providing opportunities for folks who grew up in communities that uh, uh, were typically populated with families at the lowest quintile of the economic experience and moving them, giving them opportunity to get to the upper uh, two quintiles. Mm -hmm. And they've come back and really tracked um, some of the interventions and, uh, and you know, progress. And candidly, it was a sobering update that things aren't changing particularly quickly. And I wish we would spend more time talking about what's the most reliable change agent for economic mobility, which is post-secondary education. But getting to the study, so they looked at the uh, 
the percent of students at the institutions in our area that came from lower socioeconomic backgrounds from Charlotte and the success of those students getting through um, our post-secondary experience and tracking years later, uh, right, through tax information and everything else, uh, how they ended up in terms of an income level. And we were on top of that peer group um, by far, and, and it, we exceeded the national average for truly uh, uh, as, a, as an engine for economic mobility for, for those students. Excellent. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate that. That is something that is, um, I think we should all be proud of. There's a lot more work to do, but that, that I remember when that news broke, um, it was astounding, uh, the, the number, especially compared to our peer group. Okay, I, I want to be mindful of time, and I think, I think we've got time for one last question, and it's really ending on sort of a call to action. And if I can, Reggie, I'll start with you on, on this question. So given our discussion, thinking about the, the audience members that, that are with us tonight, what, what is our call to action for creating a more inclusive, equitable, and just society? Um, yeah, it's a great question, Will, and I think um, to be succinct, fi find your voice, right? So um, don't be afraid to question the status quo. Um, if you are in a room and, and you have the, um, and you're a, ma a majority in that room, be, be the voice for the people who might not be represented in, in that room. And um, if you, you have privilege, and we didn't get into that, that conversation, but if you have privilege, um, identify how you're using that privilege. I think um, to a certain degree, many of us have privilege. You have to just understand what yours is. I mean, I think I have a privilege of being a man. I have privilege of being you know, able-bodied. Um, so so I, I'm not going to just say white privilege, but there's a broader context of privilege and you need to understand how do you take the opportunity to leverage your privilege to help those that are less fortunate, right? And being that voice in the room um, when they're not represented and, and being that um, activist that is, is really starting to not just maybe not um, actively engage in the inequities, but start to actively engage in creating opportunities to, to you know, to, to knock those barriers down. So it is more of, of an opportunity for people to have access and, and really engage fully. So it's, it's more about finding your voice and just stepping in and, and taking you know, that active role. Excellent. Thank you, Reggie, so much. I, and I couldn't get through a session without bringing this up. When, when Reggie says he's able-bodied, He's a multiple black a black belt degree in Taekwondo. So he is very able to. <laughs> Thank you, Will. Uh, I'm trying to be. COVID is not helping, but I'm trying to be. <laughs> uh, thank you, sir. Tanya, if I can ask you for the call to action for, for each of us. Yeah, I, I, I want to say um, I did tell exactly what Reggie said. So um, that plus... I would say that you have to be intentional. You were giving a quote earlier, Will, and I'll give a quote. Um, what you permit, you promote. Mm. So um, I, I would give people the call to action to do some homework. And uh, my mom was a school teacher during my formative year, so I'm going to give you two forms of homework for people. Um, one is that you pay attention to what you are seeing or hearing. Um, that supports diversity, inclusion, um, equity, and justice, and then what runs counter to that. So just pay attention to that. And then the second part of this is that I want you to take note 
of what you had, you um, wish you would have seen or heard that would have supported diversity, inclusion, equity, um, and justice. So just do those couple of things um, and then be, be intentional or take a position on where you want to go, whether it's using your voice that Reggie said or it's getting involved in some other way. So those are my two pieces of homework for people to do and then decide what you're going to do and how you're going to be intentional. You, you rolled out that homework so naturally. We're going to have to bring you on faculty in the McCall School. I, I have more of my mother's teaching in me than I ever knew as I've gotten older. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tanya, very much. And Dan, I ask you to maybe close us out uh, with your thoughts on our, our call to action going forward. Yeah, you know, and I, and, and I think you would have been wise to have Tanya or Reggie nail, nail the, uh, the landing on this one because they, their, their mastery of this topic uh, is so critically important. And it's, and it's part, part of my call to action. Um, one, this is everyone's work. This is for us to be successful in business, to be successful in healthcare and banking and education, to be successful as a community. It will take all of us seeing ourselves in the conversation, seeing ourselves as true actors. But anything that, that's that important, right, that we all have something and skin in the game to do, we need expertise, right? We actually need to put resources uh, towards this work. We need folks with expertise like Tanya and Reggie and, and, and many, many others uh, to lead the way, to coach, to truly help us navigate something that we all recognize is not easy, right? And, and the best things in life really aren't. And so it's worth it to do it. So see yourself into the conversation, resource this work, I think is critically important. And we're, we're going to all, all, all benefit uh, from that. So um, I, I would say that's, you know, uh, the best I'm going to get at, at, uh, at the succinct uh, uh, attempt at sticking the landing for a really, really important conversation. Actually, one more thing. Conversations like this, where we make the case for the work, we, we can't ignore that we have to keep doing that, right? Eventually, you know, people hear it. And I think it takes a number of audiences for folks that aren't already adopters and under, people that understand the importance of it to hear in different audience the case, the imperative, for why this is important for our communities, for our businesses, and for our country. Excellent, thank you, Dan. Thank you so much. That really underscores an earlier point that Tanya made about, you know, you make progress, but the communication and the conversations are have to be ongoing. Uh, thank you all so much for this. As I said, we had a record uh, registration attendance, and I think that's a great testament to the distinguished panel that I was honored to share the stage with uh, this evening, and I so appreciate your, your expertise and energy and time. Thank you all very much, and to those of you that are with us, we appreciate very much your, your time this evening. We wish you all a, a very nice evening ahead, and we will see you again soon. Dan, Reggie, and Tanya, thank you all again so much.